Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith ND podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And on this podcast, as you may know, or if you're coming here for the first time, we talk to people in the Notre Dame family about their lives, their vocations, the important decision moments that happen throughout their lives, and just the way that holiness is interwoven into their lives and those that have inspired them. So I'm pleased to be joined this week by Jan Schmitz-Matthew. Jan is the daughter of Roger Schmitz, who was a former professor and dean of the College of Engineering. And Jan is here to tell her story, her dad and her family's story, especially her dad's battle with ALS. So Jan, I'm so pleased. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being here. So we like to begin at the beginning. So if you could give us some insight into your childhood and your upbringing, that would be a great place to start. Sure. I grew up in Champaign, Illinois, which is about four hours from South Bend, Central Illinois. And two younger sisters joined Joni. And I would describe our family as very, very close, very traditional. Uh, Went to Catholic grade school faith was a big, big part of our lives. And when we were growing up, Jan joined Joni. My dad always called us the three J's. Right. Okay. And I remember in particular, as a teenager, I would just kind of cringe whenever I heard that because it sounded goofy and corny. <laughs> and I'm sure I rolled my eyes at that too. But especially, he would call me J.A., which you know added to the embarrassment. Mm-hmm. But at this stage... In life, I realized that being one of his J's was one of my life's richest blessings, mm-hmm. and in some ways, never outgrew that nickname. Yeah, and so I would just describe us very close, very traditional. Um, we still are. What were some of the lessons of faith that you remember as a child that have stuck with you even to now? I think just the the consistency and the value of prayer even when you don't necessarily feel like praying. Mm-hmm. And part of that, too, I mean, now my, my prayer is perhaps more spontaneous, but there's something about learning those prayers as a child that it just it's just part of you. Mm-hmm. And I find that very valuable. Plus, it was just we never, never missed a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a very important thing to establish, too, and that has carried over. So, so again, it was just kind of our cornerstone. I saw, you know, my parents, my mom praying the rosary. I mean, just the things that you pick up that right. stick with you. Yeah. And as you grew into adulthood, uh, where did some of your education take you? What were some of the early parts of your life in that regard? Well, I um, graduated from the University of Illinois, and as I said, you know, Catholic grade schools, a strong foundation there. And even though, you know, as adults, my sisters, my mom, we all live in different cities. We've never lived in the same city. Still very, very close. And I think, I mean, it's a rare day that I don't hear from my sisters and my mom, whether mm-hmm. it's an email or a text or mm-hmm. something. So we've just stayed very, very connected. Yeah. What were some of the early stages of your dad's professional career, uh, maybe before he came to Notre Dame? Before he came to Notre Dame, he was a professor of chemical engineering for, gosh, um, 25 years at U of I. Mm-hmm. 
And throughout those years, he would get offers occasionally from other universities and never gave them any serious consideration. I mean, my family never came close to moving throughout that time. The exception was, though, the offer from Notre Dame. (laughs) And that was the one that he had an opportunity here, first of all, a Catholic university, which was, you know, a huge, a huge draw. Also, he had the opportunity to build a department here mm-hmm. and to be involved in recruiting others that were passionate about that. And it was, a, I think, a turning point for the College of Engineering here when he came on board. So it was a combination of an institution that he admired with a professional opportunity. So really, there was no turning back once that offer came. And he commuted for a year between, um, he would be here during the week, come back to Champaign on the weekends. But again, it, it was worth it to him, so. And how old were you at that time? What were your, some of your feelings about the family eventually relocating to Notre Dame? I had just graduated mm. from U of I. So in terms of feeling uprooted, I really didn't mm-hmm. because I was, going to be moving and doing doing my own thing anyway. It was probably a little bit harder for my younger sisters. It was hard for my mom. Mm. Um, left a lot of close friends. Sure. But it felt, I mean, Notre Dame felt like home very quickly. And the community here was amazing. So it was, you know, a short-term adjustment. And I'm sure... I'm sure dad took some flack from <laughs> from us and from mom, but <laughs> there was, like I say, no no turning back. And within a short time, they had a community here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about establishing that community, some of the people, the traditions, the places at Notre Dame that eventually became dear to your dad and to your family? Well, it sounds a little bit cliche, but I know the first time that I was exposed to campus, it was a weekend in October, Mm -hmm. and my sisters and mom and I came for the weekend. And I remember we got here in the evening, driving down Notre Dame Avenue at the end, seeing the dome lit up. And I had never been on campus before, and I don't know that I can articulate it very well, but I just had a sense that this was a unique place and it was just such a cool visual. And I think my attachment grew gradually through the years. A lot of it had to do with the friends that my parents made and getting to know them, and a lot of significant family events here through the years. Um, Our son was baptized in the Log Chapel. Mm -hmm. Decades later, my daughter was married at the Basilica. Throughout those years, there were events for my dad that we would all come here for. Mm -hmm. So just a lot of a lot of personal connections here, and the place grows on you. I mean, every time you're here, it just it just does. So it yes. was gradual, but I think very, very authentic and a wonderful fit for my dad. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us have felt that way, and it, it's become a spiritual home for so many. Mm-hmm. Place of pilgrimage, and where people often you receive the sacraments, and those are wonderful family events. So I'm glad to hear that that was part of your family's story as well. Where did you settle after college and then eventually that you know got married? What were some of those early stages of your adult life like? Well, actually, Rick and I were married at the Basilica. Okay. And he worked for Archer Daniels Midland. So we moved several times. Uh, our first move was to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, then Des Moines, Iowa, then Lafayette, Indiana, and now where we are in Forsyth, Illinois, mm-hmm. Central mm-hmm. Illinois. And I... Probably looking back, I can I can feel what my 
mom must have felt in terms of when you do have to pick up and move. Yeah. It's whether, you know, whatever stage you're at, it's, it's a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. I mean, a better opportunity, but still you're loosening some ties. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we bounced around a bit and we have been in Forsyth for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that's where ADM is headquartered. So Mm -hmm. once you go there, you're stuck <laughs> for lack of a better word <laughs> firmly planted firmly that's planted yeah, that's, that's much right. nicer <laughs> growing up you obviously as a child you observe your parents marriage and and learn some lessons from that for good or for ill sometimes as you you know lived into your married life did you find yourself drawing back to some of those lessons of your parents marriage i believe so i always had the sense and you know when you're when you're a child, particularly a teenager, you're not always tuned into your parents. I mean, you'd <laughs> right. rather they just <laughs> not be around all the time. But you absorb things. And I always had the sense that my parents were a team, mm. regardless. I mean, in tough times, you name it, they were always a team, and they were always each other's person. And I feel that I, I followed that example in terms of whatever life brings if you can team up Mm -hmm. and stay together through it that's huge yeah especially as you're raising your own children to just sort of be a united front Mm -hmm. be on the same page Mm -hmm. so i don't know that those were conscious lessons that i learned or that they even tried to teach us but it was just through example yeah and how about for parenthood similar similar uh, situation there in terms of being a mother and watching your mother and your parents interact with their children, were there some things that that helped you with that? I think, again, faith was a big part, just being able, because, you know, any, regardless of your circumstances, parenting is, is a challenge, more so at some stages than others, and just knowing that you can turn to prayer and that your kids see you turning to prayer mm-hmm. and going to church and just all, and you never know what they're going to do with that, but... Laying that foundation, I think, is very, very big. And and a lot of time, I mean, usually it comes back, you know, full circle, yeah. even if they stray a little bit uh, through the years. But I think I tried to model what I saw as a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You mentioned how close your family has stayed, even being apart geographically, how how aware were you of your dad's experiences at Notre Dame and you know some of the people and 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 things that he was doing even as you were you know in a different place I frankly wish I would have been more aware mm-hmm. of exactly what he was doing um of course his field chemical engineering I'm the polar opposite. I don't have a math (laughs) science cell in my brain. Um, So in terms of really understanding what he did, Mm -hmm. no. But I was always so, so proud of him. Mm -hmm. And I sensed just based from, you know, awards that he won and feedback from students that he was very, very well respected Mm -hmm. in his field Mm -hmm. and so humble so humble. I mean, it would be the last thing on his mind to do a litany of, you know, his accomplishments yeah, or anything yeah. like that. And I just greatly, greatly admired him, even though, like I say, I just couldn't begin to ask him an intelligent question about what he did. 
But whatever it was, he did it very well. Well, that's a good thing. This is not a chemical engineering podcast. Oh, my God. I would, be, <laughs> I would have nothing to say. <laughs> I wouldn't have any good questions either. <laughs> but he became the dean of the College of Engineering. How did that come about? What were some of his experiences that you heard from him during that time? During that time, he, he was dean for several years and then got tapped for um, an associate provost position. Mm-hmm. And that was during um, Father Hesburgh's years. Okay. And that was a, a wonderful experience, which he enjoyed and, and maximized. But his heart was always in teaching and research. Mm-hmm. So after, and I can't honestly remember how many years, but he was in that position for a while and then wanted to go back into teaching and research. To teaching, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a wonderful opportunity for him and kind of built a different network mm-hmm. than he would have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, that all worked out, that he could return to his yeah. passion. Great, great. Do you have any memories of Father Ted or Father Ted's interactions with your dad? Yes, actually, we attended several functions that um, there was one that my parents were honored for that Father Ted emceed and gave an address. And he also, he baptized our son. Mm -hmm. So I think my parents, I'm sure my parents developed a friendship Mm -hmm. with him through Mm -hmm. the years. And for me, that was always a pretty cool experience, too, you know, to be in his company and everything. But yes, I think my parents are quite close to him. Yeah, everyone of a certain age, you know, even even to the end of his life, people often have Father Ted stories. So mm-hmm. uh, love to mm-hmm. love to share those as they come about. So that's great that your dad came back to teaching. When did he eventually make the decision to retire, and what was that transition like for him? I think it was. Let's see. I think it was two thousand and five that he. Yes, 2005, that he officially retired. Mm -hmm. And in that time, he he kept an office on campus for quite a while, and he was teaching Mm -hmm. occasionally. He also wrote a textbook, an electronic textbook in that time. It was just basically, I think he enjoyed doing things on his terms. Mm -hmm. And it never felt like he actually retired. Yeah. And my mom will be the first to say that, too. It just Maybe it's just professors. They don't really ever <laughs> quite retire. But what was most important is he was doing what he loved and had the flexibility and mm-hmm. the time to do it. And Notre Dame made that all work. Uh, that's great to hear. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, though, your dad developed ALS later in life. Can you take us through some of the initial stages of that discovery, his reaction to it, you and your mother's, your family's reaction to that news? Well, my dad was, a, oh, he, he was a runner for decades, and he would always, I think probably for 10 or 11 years, every year my family would run the Sunburst here mm-hmm. in South Bend. And he would typically place sometimes first place in his age category. Yeah. And he'd joke about that because, you know, sometimes he was the only one in his age category. <laughs> but running, he was passionate about running. And he was running until his up until his early 70s. So his first his initial symptom, noticeable symptom of ALS, which came out of the clear, clear blue, when he would run, his right foot would feel a little bit sluggish. Mm. And the term for that is foot drop or drop foot either. And at first he thought, well, maybe he had just overdone it 
or it could be nerve damage, but it just, the foot just wasn't cooperating. And it didn't improve. And eventually that weakness spread to his leg, to his other foot. And it took, it took months to arrive at a diagnosis. Mm. And that's one of the, the frustrating things about ALS. There is no definitive test. Mm. It's a process of elimination. At a certain point, they knew it wasn't Parkinson's. They knew it wasn't MS. They knew it wasn't any kind of spinal cord injury. But at the same time, the weakness was spreading. It wasn't getting any better. Mm. So at the end, um, after several months, all you're left with is ALS. Mm. And it's not like you lose any time because there's nothing that you could really do. Yeah. I mean, if, if he had been diagnosed right out of the chute, it honestly wouldn't have made a difference. Mm. There's nothing yeah. you can do. So in terms of us handling it, we knew, my sisters and I and my mom, we knew something was wrong. And through the months, maybe ALS crossed our minds, but we just didn't want to go there. And by the time he was diagnosed, it was apparent. By that time, the weakness had spread to, you know, arms, legs, still able to walk, mm -hmm. but with a walker. There's still something about getting that official diagnosis and being mm. told that, that it just kind of blows you away. Yeah. And even my dad, in, um, he sent us an email in March, my sisters and I, just saying he had met with the doctor, the diagnosis was now official, they had ruled everything else out. There's still something about seeing that and hearing that that you think, oh my gosh, can't believe it, mm -hmm. even though you're seeing it. Yeah. So we just, from that point forward, pulled together. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, ALS was made most famous by Lou Gehrig, you know, even often called Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm -hmm. Did you know much about the disease before your dad had it? I mean, any family history or anyone close that you knew had it? Really not. Really not. Um, I was aware of it in general, and I knew in general it's one of the worst things that can happen to you mm -hmm. in terms of the progression of the disease, the prognosis, really no, no treatment or anything. The one thing I did learn that surprised me, one of the first things my dad did was get reassurance that it was not in the family. Mm. 90, over 90% of ALS cases are random. Mm. And I had thought the opposite. Okay. I thought it was, you know, clearly in a family not that's the exception mm -hmm. so it was a relief to him to know that and certainly to us but in terms of knowing exactly you know details about the disease no I really didn't have any prior personal experience with it it just hit us completely out of the clear blue and the fact that no underlying conditions I mean he was athletic he was healthy kind of a perfect track record yeah. until this, yeah. which is, it takes you a while, or at least it did us, to wrap your head around that. Yeah, I would imagine so. I was going to ask, as a daughter, you know, you'd seen your dad do amazing things uh, in terms of his being a loving husband and, and father, but also professionally, lots of achievements, awards, accolades, and, and then athletically continuing to run. H how did you grapple with all of a sudden you know, this man that you look up to that could seemingly do almost anything, 
all of a sudden or very rapidly couldn't do even the, some of the simplest things. That was absolutely heartbreaking. But the remarkable thing about my dad, and I do believe it was God's grace, he was always himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same same characteristics that I loved about him all of his life, you know, generosity, intelligence, kindness, logic, all of that stayed in place until the day he died. Mm. That said, though, even though he was still dad, it's hard to see someone, like you say, who is so physically fit decline like that mm-hmm. and to see to see his frustration with that, too. But another, I think, grace-inspired aspect was from the very beginning, from that initial email, he was still in his own way putting us first mm. and taking care of us, mm-hmm. just as he always had, in terms of the tone that he took with this. I yeah. mean, there was never, he'd get frustrated sometimes, but there was never any self-pity. There was never any why me. He made it as easy on us as he could. Mm-hmm. I mean, still, I'm seeing him decline. I'm seeing him struggle at, you know, with lifting his arm, lifting his foot, which was heartbreaking to me. But his attitude made the big made the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. a sense of humor. Yeah. You know, when he when he was getting used to his motorized wheelchair and he'd clobber the wall once in a while. Well, mm-hmm. he kind of scold himself or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, just a sense of humor and never turned down the opportunity to, if anybody wanted to stop by, visit, even when he was very compromised, but mm-hmm. always be putting good stuff out there. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is amazing. What role did his faith play in during that time of his life, especially as he grappled with the reality of this illness? I think it played a very big part. And, you know, it's easy, as we know, to have faith when things are going well mm-hmm. or the routine. It's so, so challenging when you're faced with something like we were. About a month before he died, my sister Joni asked him if he would record his philosophy of life. Hmm. And at that point, that was a huge undertaking for him because his speech was a little bit compromised, his breathing was a little bit compromised, but he did, he did it. So we've got that recording and one of the key components of that was talking about his faith and the difference that it made and one of his um, key points was the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. And that had guided him throughout his life and in the serenity prayer for him the biggest part was acceptance. And he lived that out. I mean, you are realistic about what you can change, what you cannot change. You have no choice in his mind but to accept your diagnosis Mm -hmm. and do the best you can with Mm -hmm. it. So that and um, the golden rule Mm. were the two points that he really – that and a a respect for the Catholic tradition. That never left him. Mm -hmm. But those two, for for him, that defined Christianity, the serenity prayer and the golden rule. Yeah. Two, two good things to live by for sure. What was the response in the, the Notre Dame community at this at the time? Uh, he had obviously been here for a number of years and impacted so many students and administrators, other faculty members across campus. How did the Notre Dame community respond? In amazing ways. I don't think there was 
I don't know that there there was a day that passed that my parents didn't have friends come by. And I know Father Doyle in particular um, came to the house numerous times to say Mass Mm -hmm. when my dad, you know, wasn't going out. Monk Malloy was a frequent visitor. I mean, just, just an outpouring that was very, very genuine. And I think one point that my mom made, and I saw this a few times, you know, when I was home and, and people would visit, he really made it easy for visitors. I mean, in terms of, like I said, his, his sense of humor, conversation, I mean, always very welcoming as opposed to people feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. about showing up. And mm-hmm. I know there had to be days where it was quite an effort for him. But as my mom shared, there was never a time he said no. Even he spent a few days in the hospital before we got him home when he died. Even in the hospital hmm. was still people showed up. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like he was beloved by so many. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was the response. You discussed how your parents' marriage was always a team. And I imagine that was tested in a unique way during his illness. What did you witness about your mom's response and your parents' marriage during his illness? Well, my mom in the early days of, or months, I should say, of ALS, she would sometimes describe it as the two of them against the world. I Mm. mean, she was just by his side doing, you know, whatever she could, didn't hesitate. And I know it was exhausting. But that was her focus, doing what she could for him. And one of the very brave things that my mom did, in my opinion, was know when it was time to get help. Mm. When he could no longer, I mean, for a while, and that's the thing, too, about ALS, it can just, his progression was very rapid. And that's somewhat unusual. But he was also diagnosed at an older age. And, you know, one day she would have it figured out how she could get him from the bed to a wheelchair. Like he was still able to, you know, wrap his arms around her neck. Mm -hmm. The next day he couldn't. Hmm. So you're always having to think on your feet in terms of, okay, now how do we handle this? And for a while she could, and then it just wasn't possible. So it was brave of her to ask for help. The last, I would say the last several months of his life, there were regular rotation Mm -hmm. of people that would come and help, you know, like at bedtime, transferring him, showers, all that type of type of thing. And even when she had those reinforcements, mom would still just be right shoulder to shoulder with whoever was Mm -hmm. taking care of him. Mm -hmm. That was very, very important to her. So I saw her, I saw her really step up with lots of grit and patience and faith And like I say, they had for decades kind of a charmed life, Mm. charmed marriage. So Mm -hmm. this was very consistent. I mean, it stayed the same throughout Mm -hmm. his illness. Yeah, living those those vows, yeah, for sure. Yes, absolutely. How was it for you and your family being a bit distant from this and, and, you know, worrying about it and traveling back as much as you could? What was that experience like? That was a mixed blessing, and true confession, I would, uh, my sisters and I, would have kind of a regular rotation, Uh so somebody was always on their calendar, and I was still working at the time, flexible because I was freelancing, but still had commitments, so I couldn't be there all the time, same with my sisters, and I have to admit, 
every it was hard it was hard to go home yeah especially the last several months because i knew that what i had seen the last time even if it had just been a few weeks ago could be drastically mm-hmm. different the next time mm-hmm. i showed up but i am very grateful that i kept showing up because i also witnessed incredible teamwork i witnessed how my dad was handling it that was a blessing but there was sometimes I would drive away, just kind of relieved that I could leave. Yeah. And then you feel guilty. Sure. <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of a catch-22. When I wasn't there, I would occasionally worry about how they were getting along. When I was there, I thought, a small part of me thought, well, thank God I can go back home. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed bag, a mixed yeah. bag. I worried less. We worried less once I knew they had caregivers and people that they could mom could call in a heartbeat but you still you still take a hit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I really appreciate that honesty and I think that's something that will resonate with a lot of people because it's th- those situations are just hard and it's there's mm-hmm. you don't feel good about it no matter you know how much or how little you can interact and and I think that's a very human feeling to feel some relief when when you can step away from it for a time right but obviously, as as his disease progressed, you were able to be with him there more and more. What was his death like? Can you share the, that story, if you would, please, and the opportunity for you to be with him? Well, my dad was, gosh, it was on a Monday. He had an appointment, probably should have happened earlier, but he had an appointment for a feeding tube. And the, the logic behind that was, or the rationale was, it could possibly give him some extra time. I mean, it was clear, he, I mean, by that time he was, you know, in a hospital bed or his motorized wheelchair. So basically still able to breathe, but not able to eat as well, that's mm. the feeding tube. So he went in on a Monday and it should have been more or less outpatient should have got home the next, the same day, but by that point he was more compromised than they realized and weak. So they kept him in the hospital because it, he just wasn't rebounding from that. And that was on a Monday, and I think my sisters and I were all in town by Wednesday because it was clear it was going to be more imminent okay. than we thought. And on Friday... He woke up that morning, and we got to the hospital as soon as we could. My mom never, I don't think she left the hospital throughout that week. And one of the first things he was able to say, by that time it was more of kind of a whisper, Mm. but his voice was always a little bit stronger in the morning, and he said, managed to say to my mom, I I won't make it through this day. And mom, God bless her, being the cheerleader, said, oh, sure you will, sure Mm. you will. Mm. But he knew. He had this instinct. Wow. And so we were there, and he managed to say, I love my Jays. Hmm. And that was the last thing that I heard him say. If he needed to communicate, by the end of the day, we even, like, came up with a poster board of the ABCs. And, like, he'd blink if he wanted, you know, the covers up, the covers back. We, my mom was determined to get him home. So we fast-tracked hospice that afternoon. We got him home on Londonbury Lane by, like, 6 o'clock in the evening, and everybody was there, set up his hospital bed in the living room so he could look out of the window, and he died about 9 o'clock, about three hours later. Mm. So it was a blessing in that he was home. It was very, 
very peaceful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, gradually the time between inhale, exhale slowed down, and it was just he breathed in, he didn't breathe out. Mm. But no struggle, no pain, no anything like that. And I did notice in, I'd say, the 30 minutes or so before he died, his mouth was moving. And his eyes were open and just kind of staring up. And it seemed it seemed intentional, mm-hmm. whether he was praying, whether he was seeing someone. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem random. And that brought me comfort. I mean, it's still a surreal moment. Yeah. I had never, I'd never seen anyone die. Right. And here it is, my dad. Yeah. My hero. But I, I have come to see... God's hand in that in terms of everything I described, being mm. home. It was peaceful. Everyone that he loved best, the core, my, you know, my family's core, we were there. Wow. And that was a blessing. Yeah. It, it sounds like it, and thank you for sharing that. I know that's um, a difficult memory. In, in, the, in the aftermath, honoring your dad during you know, the funeral and those things, are there any stories that stick out to you that were particularly poignant during that time? Outpouring at, um, we had his memorial service at the Basilica. It was packed. Mm. It was packed. And I think probably for an hour and a half prior, you know, people could come through if they wanted. And it was just, in that moment, that for me was as good as it got in terms of being comforted mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. the outpouring from my mom and my sisters and I gave the eulogy and we had well I I basically you know wrote what we were going to say and we had practiced off and on because there were like four or five days between when he died and the service and we had practiced numerous times and without fail one of us would break down I mean we never got through it the three of us one of us would break down but in that moment when we got up you know in the pulpit the silica and I looked out and saw the place just packed. There's, again, it sounds a little cliche, but just kind of the sense of peace. And you could feel these waves coming at you from people who were with you in spirit. So when the moment came, none of us broke down. Hmm. We were able to, we had the grace to get through it. And I think it, for me personally, everybody's process is different, but the hard stuff came later. Mm. in the moment that day and um you know then we had a a reception type thing afterwards you're surrounded by people and there's this outpouring and you're kind of running on adrenaline yeah then when all of that fades which you know it does that's just how things cycle that's when the real work starts yeah yeah just that a constant absence yes in through all the next life's events and and those kinds of things Sometimes during those moments of support, though, you hear stories about a loved one that you didn't know or, or, or hadn't heard before. Do you remember anything like that of someone telling you something about your dad or just confirming something about your dad that, that really helped you during that time? I think just in general, the stories about his, his humility, his kindness, the people that, well, one example 
is my publisher, Jim Langford, Corby Books. He had interactions and meetings with my dad when my dad was in administration. Mm -hmm. And Jim told me that even though they'd only meet maybe several times a year, he so looked forward to getting together with my dad. I Mm -hmm. mean, they had the Cubs in common and, you know, any (laughs) number of things. But it was always a highlight for him. And that kind of surprised me a little bit, too. I mean, I just think he had a very engaging way about him and very memorable, mm-hmm. very memorable. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, Jim always said that was one of his favorite encounters was when he got to meet with my dad. So Great. Well, you mentioned the publishing, so let's turn to the book. You actually wrote a book about mm-hmm. your family's experience of this. Can you tell us more about that, please? Sure. Um, it's entitled Surrounded by Love, My Family's Journey Through ALS, and it was what I call a labor of love. Probably start to finish, it was five to six years. But the way it started, I did not intend to write a book. It started as personal essays. Every time I would visit my dad, or in the early days when he was still able to, to come to my house, as I saw the progression, I would just write about it. Mm. And it was, in retrospect, I think my way of trying to understand what was happening, try to process what was happening. I've always been a writer from childhood diaries on, so it came naturally to me to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a member of a couple of area writing groups, which is the format is basically you share and you get feedback, you know, from fellow writers. And so I would share my essays with them from time to time. And at some point, someone suggested that I, I might have a book, possibly put it in manuscript form, mm-hmm. which for me just involved organizing the information in a way that wasn't random. And... It just went from there. Mm -hmm. And the more I got into it, the more potential I saw for what I could include Mm -hmm. and how it could help other families Mm. because I was determined. And again, it wasn't a conscious conscious thought on my part, but subconsciously I was determined to see goodness in this and to see the opportunity to help because Mm -hmm. if my dad suffered and my family went through this for kind of nothing, I, I just couldn't live with that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was the core. That mm-hmm. was the core of it. And I was at a certain point considering self-publishing. And then my mom suggested I reach out to Jim. Mm. And the rest is kind of history in terms of the book being published. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's come out recently. What has been the process of actually getting it from these organized notes to book form and, and having it out? Well, the process, like I said, that was years' worth of effort on my part. The book was actually published a year ago, last October, in you know the midst of the pandemic, which was a little bit miraculous <laughs> in and of itself. And in terms of working with Jim and Corby Books, there wasn't – he pretty much fast-tracked it. I mean, I didn't do a lot – he didn't ask for many edits. Mm-hmm. And I was comfortable with that because I felt I had done so much self-editing sure. and workshopped it you know, in my writers' groups that I wasn't too concerned about those types of things. Uh, we worked together you know, on the cover mm-hmm. and on photos, and I'm not very comfortable in terms of publicity and that type of thing. So mm-hmm. Jim did some of that. I've also presented you know, to area groups and uh, grief support groups. 
but he got it you know on Amazon it's available through his his website mm-hmm. that part of it was was all him the response has been great great how did you come up with the title? What, is, what significance does that have? You know, I give my sister Joni credit for that because she would occasionally say, and this was long before our experience with ALS, but she would always say about our childhood and about growing up that she always felt surrounded by love. Mm. And that was just something she would say frequently. And it resonated with me, too, because I always felt that way. I never doubted the closeness of our family. I never doubted that our parents loved us dearly and vice versa. So that stuck with me and it just seemed like the perfect title because it characterized how we grew up, my family's history, and it totally characterized what we were able to do when dad got sick. Mm -hmm. I frankly don't know how families would do it otherwise. Yeah. I mean, you hear, you know, I mean, that does happen. Sure. That it, you know, can divide you. And people aren't on the same page, but I, I don't think we could have handled it gracefully otherwise. Mm-hmm. I want to return to, I think, what w- was an important point that you made about grappling with suffering and drawing meaning from it. And I think, I mean, even to take it to Christ's cross, you know, how do we draw meaning out of that event? How do we, uh, how could God make something good happen out of that? And we don't usually ever understand the initial reasons for someone's suffering or our own suffering. But I think part of the pursuit of faith is to say, well, what can we do with this now? Mm-hmm. And I imagine the book is part of that. But as, as you and I talked before this, you've also been able to do some outreach to families going through a similar journey with ALS. Could you tell us some about that, please? That has probably been the most gratifying part when I can connect basically heart to heart with someone who is either at my stage or in the trenches because ALS is rare. It's a disease that many don't understand. It can be isolating and there is such value in my opinion to sharing the experience and speaking the same language because even though everyone's journey with this disease any journey is individual, there are some common aspects. And I think when people who are in the trenches with ALS or still processing, when they hear, when they hear their language, when whatever they're telling me about symptoms or this or that, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And that's very true for my mom, too. And that has been, I mean, I, I welcome any opportunity to present and to introduce myself in the book, but most gratifying is when you just, when I feel I've, I've really connected and possibly helped in a small way. And there are a lot of opportunities out there. There are more people impacted by this than I would have thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You said the response to the book and, and these kinds of discussions have been good. Have there been any stories that, that you could share where you could really see that this really made a difference, that this really helped someone or a family that you were, that, that either read the book or you were interacting with? Well, what's also gratifying is, you know, after I do maybe present to a group, people come up to you afterwards, and that's when you have the opportunity to hear their stories. Mm-hmm. And I just think it just means a lot to people to be heard. And even though it's a painful topic, there's such value in sharing. And even if I can't, which I can't, 
you know, change circumstances or change a thing. The fact that I can listen and the fact that they're comfortable sharing with me tells me that, you know, parts of the book did resonate and helped in a small way. Yeah, that's great. You said early on that it wouldn't have mattered that when your dad was diagnosed and, and, and kind of the prognosis for him, can you share anything about, has there been any progress in the research or possible treatments for ALS, or where does that stand? I don't think, I mean, there's certainly, and I'm not, you know, up to date on a lot of the, of what's going on now. I know there haven't been any big breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. I know efforts are ongoing. I think, unfortunately, not much has changed since the Lou Gehrig days. Hmm. The biggest change in my mind has been the adaptive technology in terms of how ALS patients are able to communicate. Something, you know, even like the, the wheelchairs. I mean, there's been a lot of progress there, but in terms of what you can do, you can do nothing to prevent it. Mm-hmm. It's random. Mm-hmm. And treatment, really not at this point. Hmm. Um, I do need to better acquaint myself with some of the the trials that are going on. I know in my dad's case, a lot of it had to do with his age and how rapidly it progressed. So he didn't necessarily qualify or even have time to participate in a clinical trial. But I know they're out there. I also know of people who live with this disease five years and longer. Mm -hmm. So there are outliers, Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of how many years you can live with it. But typically... Three to five years is it, yeah, and not much you can do during yeah. that time. Okay. How has your faith been impacted throughout this entire journey, and how has it been a refuge to you? Well, in my scheme of belief, nothing, nothing in my life is random. In terms of the people I've met, the opportunities I've had, the experiences, it is just all part of God's plan and the way my life was meant to be. And one of my favorite quotes is, and it applies to what I'm, what I'm hopefully doing through the book, is the effort is mine, the outcome is God's. Mm. And I like that yeah. because I, I put it out there and trust that the outcome is in his hands. So I would say even though ALS is a tremendous test of faith, as is any difficult journey like that, I would say it strengthened my faith. Sometimes I'm a little bit blown away by imagining, trying to imagine what my dad's experiencing mm-hmm. and how that all works. But I trust it's good. Yeah. I also feel his presence in ways through nature, sometimes dreams, just sometimes that little, I attribute it to the Holy Spirit, just that little voice you hear. Mm-hmm. So I would say it was tested, definitely, but is stronger than ever because I don't know how you'd get through something like that without faith. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would agree. So how would you describe your dad's legacy? What do you think that, that is, if, is, if you could sum up his life as you know now the whole of his story? I would say his legacy is evident in my sisters and I, in his grandchildren, mm-hmm. how well he is remembered. So, so many times, um, whether it's a big decision, small decision, an attitude, you name it, I will think to myself, well, what would Papa say? Mm. Or what would he do? Mm. And I think that's the best gift you can give anyone is that they want to model themselves in a way after you 
much more important to me than any mementos or money. I mean, it's just he's constantly present to me mm-hmm. and not in a sad or debilitating way, just a constant awareness. I think of him very often. I try and make, like I said, decisions based on what he would say or do. I think that's true of my sisters and his grandchildren. And you were right earlier in terms of he's missed he's missed a lot in the last eight years. Yeah. And sometimes the human part of me misses him so much and wishes he was still because he was just at the center of everything in our <laughs> family. So that part is hard. Yeah. But I also trust that somehow he's aware mm-hmm. or there's, even though he's missing things, wherever he is, that's not a sad thing for him. He gets it. Mm-hmm. He gets the whole big picture. And yeah. that is something I don't think any of us can really wrap our minds around. But I find comfort in that and absolutely no suffering. It all makes sense to him at this point. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's a, a beautiful and hopeful sentiment. Returning to the book... It's been out for about a year now. What do you hope comes of people's reading of the book and sharing the book? I hope that even though it's focused definitely on ALS, I hope that there are aspects of the book that are universal to people. Because regardless of anyone who's lost a loved one, I think will find something that resonates in this. I hope that people understand the value of reaching out and sharing because it's you know it was a tough task to put all of this together but I do think it was absolutely worth it and one of the points I make in the afterward to the book is that if you're hesitant if you're ever hesitant to say something to someone who's lost a loved one because you think it might make them sad mm. or that it might bring it all back well, they never forgot. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful thing to, to share whatever you want to say because it means so much, and it shows the person that you think of their loved one, too, mm-hmm. and that's a wonderful feeling. I never, I'm always so touched when people talk to me about my dad. It never, yeah, maybe it'll make me a little bit sad, but it's just so gratifying. So my one of my points is, you know, when in doubt, just put it out there. Mm -hmm. It's always worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm sure this has been and continues to be a gift to to people who are reading it because because you've done that. We call the podcast Everyday Holiness, so we like to talk about holiness. Who have been some of the models of holiness for you in your life? Definitely my dad. I would also add my mom. In fact, one one thing that I wanted to share is, um, as I said, my sisters and I did the eulogy. And one thing my sister Joy shared in her section was about my mom. Mm-hmm. And she said, and I totally, totally agree with this, one angel in particular modeled everything we will ever need to know about love and commitment, our mama. She said, I do, to Papa 56 years ago, and from that day forward, she was his best friend and top supporter in good times and bad, in sickness and in health. When we were little girls, Mama always told us she was the toughest woman on the block. Now, as not-so-little girls, we see her toughness in a whole new light. She did not allow ALS to win as she kept Papa's essence alive. We will forever, she will forever be our rock and our inspiration. We will never look at her without seeing Christ. And that totally resonates. Mm. 
I would say also the people that continue to surround my mom, her Notre Dame friends, they model Christ too. They keep showing up and reaching out. And I think that is, that's where I see holiness Mm -hmm. in her community. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. And then finally for you, how have you tried to live holiness in your life as with all the things that have been thrown your way? um, How have you kept your faith alive and tried to live a holy life? I think, again, reaching out to people and and looking for that, too, looking for that, because sometimes I have a practice, a daily practice of a gratitude journal, and sometimes you can overlook very simple things, but if you take a closer look, you will see the hand of God, you will see Christ in people, and sometimes it can take some effort, but once you get, or for me, once I get in that mode, you see it all around, whether it's in nature, whether it's in people. But I do, I do think that faith, it does require an effort, and that's up to us. But yeah, I, I see lots of models of holiness in daily life. Well, thank you very much. Your sentiment that we put our work out there and then let God take it from there, very much resonated with me in terms of this podcast and, and certainly Faith ND, that we, we try and share these stories, and it's always gratifying to see and hear how this is impacting people who are listening or reading our work. And so I just want to thank you, Jan, for the courage and the willingness to come and share this story on the podcast, as well as for the book of your family story, Your Dad's Battle with ALS. It's certainly been a pleasure hearing more about that and getting to share that with our audience. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. And I always start my day with reading the Daily Reflection. And typically, there will be something that resonates with me that I kind of keep in my head and my heart through the day. So you do good things. Oh, well, (laughs) thank you. It's certainly a team effort, and we appreciate all of uh, the writers and, and folks out there. So, well, thanks again, Jan. That concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. If you'd like to hear about future episodes, you're welcome to subscribe to the podcast uh, in any service of your choosing. We'd encourage you to rate the podcast and share it with any family and friends who you think would enjoy these stories. And as always, to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.